What are my crimes? You mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm sorry, I have an overt on that. What are you afraid yeah, of, yeah, dude? What are you afraid of? What are my crimes? What are you afraid Don't of? Don't you have a team of What people? are you afraid of? Why are you what afraid, afraid of Hubbard? Of? Why yeah. are you afraid of Hubbard? Yeah, you know what, what, what is your problem? Why are you, you don't have I'm not permission? afraid of Hubbard. I, I'm vastly amused by Hubbard. You don't have oh. permission to shoot me, okay? Put the camera down. But you're on the public street, Put the camera down. Yeah. You don't have my permission. Listen, you don't, you, you can't face us without a camera? Mark, why don't you put the camera down and face us? Familiar with that term? I mean, I'm here. What are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? What? Yeah, answer my question. Well, there's plenty to be afraid of. Answer my question. But I'm here, aren't I? Why are you afraid of me? You haven't answered my question yet. What are you afraid of? I'm not afraid. I think Don't you are, Mark. You, would, you wouldn't be afraid if you weren't doing what you're doing, Mark. You're doing something. It's proof that you're afraid. You're afraid of the success of Scientology because people are going to find out your crimes. What are they, Mark? Spit them out. Get it off your chest. Scientology, the one and only religion founded by a literal science fiction writer, has been rapidly growing since its birth in the 20th century, and it's not stopping anytime soon. Scientology's success comes from their ability to conform to modern culture, as well as market their religion to anyone. For instance, a Muslim can be a Scientologist, a Christian can be a Scientologist, even a Satanist can be a Scientologist. No one is barred entry from the the church's legendary philosophy. They'll have you believe A through Z when it comes to their founder's dogma, but it's all a scam. Masked as self-help, acting as a religion. It doesn't take a genius to see that Scientology is one big lie. The last ditch effort by a desperate man to solidify his name in history. It's been dogpiled by critics and accusers, even labeled as a cult, if not the single greatest deception ever pulled off. But despite all the bad press, celebrity catastrophes, government operations, and shit movies, Scientology manages to collect approximately $500 million annually, all thanks to their capitalist vision and tax-exempt status. They reach millions of people that continue to promote the Founder's teachings and practices across the globe. A Founder who claimed his divine religion would awaken superhuman abilities deep within the mind, turning individual from ordinary to extraordinary. A founder who claimed his tools can cure generations. He only asks for one thing, that you sacrifice every dollar you have, course after course, years of devotion to the cause. Then, and only then, will you be a Scientologist, finally gifted with the secrets of not just science and religion, but the late founder's very own buried knowledge of our world and beyond. Most of the information in this video surrounding the founder of Scientology comes from John A. Tack, a former Scientologist turned critic who explains his analysis of the religion in A Piece of the Blue Sky, as well as Russell Miller, the author of Barefaced Messiah, a critic of Scientology who used the Freedom of Information Act to gather enough credible information to challenge Hubbard's tall tales. And lastly, HBO's award-winning documentary, Going Clear. Regardless, to this day, Hubbard is revered as a messianic figure within the Church of Scientology, as it is entirely based upon his written texts and lectures. Now all we're asking you to do is pick up where he left off. But I don't know any of this stuff. Neither did Elrond when he started. He said he just closed his eyes and wrote down whatever came to mind. You can do the same. Just let it flow. The success of Scientology hinges on a simple idea. Elrond Hubbard must be seen as perfect 
and filled with purpose from the start. Otherwise, all of his writings and teachings are worth nothing. If Hubbard couldn't fool people into believing him, he stood no chance at recruiting new apologists into Scientology. Once the curtain was over their eyes, he would replace it with bars, convincing his followers that he would provide them with paradise. This is coming from the man who once said, the only way you can control people is to lie to them. And you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. There are three wildly differing realities when it comes to dissecting Scientology. Old Scientology, which we will call Hubbard's Truth. New Scientology, which pertains to new leadership and modern rebranding under David Miscavige and the actual truth. Buried by the passage of time and layers of corporate marketing, Hubbard was a creative man. Since Scientology loves to present Hubbard as the Messiah, a part of a master plan since birth, it can easily become exhausting trying to interpret the man he truly was. Well, Mr. Hubbard, it's obviously something that's very wide-ranging, and if you can't describe it overall, perhaps we can begin at the beginning. How did you get into Scientology? How did it all start? Well, that, that is fairly easy. Lafayette Ronald Hubbard was born on March 13, 1911, in Tilden, Nebraska, to parents Harry Hubbard, a former Navy sailor, and LaDora Waterbury, a teacher and housewife. As an only child, Elrond spent most of his childhood in Montana, after his father bought a homestead in Helena. It's thought to be that Hubbard and his family grew up following the Methodist faith, but noted that his grandfather was a, quote, devout atheist. He may have questioned his religion at a very young age, after seeing it questioned by others in his life, which can be seen as a first step towards shaping his his own religion. Modern Scientologists are conditioned to believe Hubbard was a prodigy, possessing skills such as riding a horse before he could walk, and being able to read and write by the age of four. Scientology also claims that Hubbard and his family descend from a prestigious bloodline. According to the account published in the Church of Scientology's Ability magazine in 1959, Hubbard, quote, descends from the Count de Lou, who entered England with the Norman invasion, and became the founder of the English de Wolf family, which emigrated to America in the 17th century. The Count de Lou title came from Hubbard's ancestor, who, according to the fable, saved the King of France from an attack by a wolf. The king granted him an honorary title, eventually anglicized to de Wolf, the name of Hubbard's maternal grandfather. This story was never substantiated and acts as just another lie sold to the masses in order to legitimize or popularize Hubbard and the church. The reality is, Hubbard's life drastically changed as constant travel became the norm for his family. Hubbard's father re-enlisted in the Navy during the onset of World War I, forcing the family to relocate to San Diego and Seattle. It was during this time in which Scientology claims Hubbard began to learn from his father and other military personnel in order to prepare him to join the Navy. Interestingly, the young Hubbard met Joseph Snake Thompson, a U.S. psychoanalyst who disagreed with American psychoanalytic establishments whose beliefs are eerily similar to Hubbard's later on in life. 
At the age of 12, Hubbard joined the Boy Scouts and, according to Scientology, actually became the youngest Eagle Scout in the country. Most of Hubbard's early life was dictated by his father, who constantly wanted Elron to be educated and poised for a military career. Hubbard was enrolled at Union High School and Queen Anne High School, but never finished his education because his father would move again due to work, this time to Guam. Hubbard and his mother traveled to Guam to visit his father, but had to make stops in the Philippines, Japan, and China. This is where Scientology believes Hubbard gained knowledge beyond imagining, unlocking secrets to the human psyche. In his own personal writings, Hubbard wrote of these visits, stating he had disdain for the indigenous people in the East. He looked down upon their poverty and called them lazy and ignorant, at one point referring to the inhabitants as racial slurs. But Scientology will have its adherents believe Hubbard was tolerant and loving, and that he came to this mysterious land for experience and wisdom, where he witnessed wonders beyond scientific explanation. It was during these expeditions where he would draw inspiration for Scientology from Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. Upon his return home in 1927, Hubbard was placed under his grandparents' care as his family tried to push him towards a meaningful education. Later that year, he enrolled at Helena High School. Unfortunately, Hubbard dropped out the following year due to failing grades. So much for being a child prodigy. Scientology acknowledges Hubbard's poor academic scores throughout life by stating he was inclined to a more, quote, philosophical appetite. Hubbard's disappointment continued after failing the Naval Academy entrance examination, for which his father was not all too happy. About a year later, in 1929, Hubbard's father enrolled him in Swavely Preparatory School in Virginia. However, due to myopia, or nearsightedness, Hubbard switched schools again to the Woodward School for Boys. Finally settling down in Washington, D.C., he would go on to graduate and enter a formal college education at George Washington University, studying civil engineering. While Scientologists will have you believe he was as smart as Einstein, Hubbard never received a degree from the university. Hubbard's grades included an A in physical education, or gym class, B in English, C in mechanical engineering, D in general chemistry, D in electrical and magnetic physics, F in calculus, F in German, and an F in nuclear physics. But he didn't seem to care about his grades. His interests were held by other endeavors such as writing, flying, and any other extracurricular activities. After joining the University Flying Club and becoming more adventurous, Hubbard began an expedition to the Caribbean. In his own words, he wanted to explore and film the pirate strongholds, the bivouacs of the Spanish main, in order to collect whatever one collects for exhibits in a museum. The trip was disorganized, and almost immediately, those who joined opted out after an emergency docking in Bermuda. Hubbard carried on and reached the Caribbean. According to Scientology, this trip was a successful adventure, similar to his journey in Asia. But Hubbard himself disproves this claim. As he once stated, the expedition was a complete financial bust. Even the captain of the ship was quoted as saying, the worst trip I ever made. After the expedition collapsed, multiple members demanded refunds. Ashamed, Hubbard 
did not return to George Washington University the following year. His father, once again disappointed in his son's mistakes, volunteered him for the Red Cross, in which Hubbard took part in a trip to Puerto Rico. While en route, Hubbard decided to abandon the Red Cross and his father's plans by joining a mineral surveyor in hopes of finding lost gold. Hubbard was using state-of-the-art technology unheard of at the time, which allowed him to escape his father's demands by masking his digital location. Which is why today's video is sponsored by Surfshark VPN. Surfshark VPN keeps your online identity safe by encrypting all of the information sent between your device and the internet. This keeps your personal data protected from big companies and cyber criminals. A VPN or virtual private network works by allowing you to swap the real location of your device with a new one. By changing your IP address, you can virtually travel anywhere around the globe. Surfshark has over 3,200 servers to choose from in over 100 countries. With Surfshark, you can access and unblock content libraries and streaming services from other countries, like Netflix or even HBO Max. You can also bypass censorship by unlocking websites that are blocked by geo-restrictions. Masking your IP address is essential to becoming private online. Surfshark makes sure that your city, country, and download history aren't linked to your identity. Best of all, Surfshark offers a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk to try it out. Go to surfshark.deals/philion for three extra months for free. That's promo code philion at surfshark.com. And thank you to Surfshark for sponsoring this video. Hubbard's gold search didn't last very long, returning to the States in 1933 empty-handed. However, he did meet a fellow glider pilot by the name of Margaret Grubb. The two fell in love and had two children, Elron Jr. and Catherine May Hubbard. The family was constantly working to sustain a livelihood, but Hubbard was lucky to find a new, enjoyable occupation as a writer. Hubbard had started off writing in college for the student newspaper, but now began a career as a freelancer, a, quote, penny-a-word writer, trying to find his niche by making adventure, intrigue, and western novels, as well as romances and, maybe his most popular, science fiction. The first to publish one of Hubbard's short stories was the pulp magazine Thrilling Adventures in 1934. The next several years proved to be exceptional, as many of Hubbard's stories were published under a variety of different pen names, including Rene Lafayette, Joe Blitz, and Legionnaire 148. In total, Hubbard would create 324 works of fiction, working under John Campbell, a fellow science fiction writer and editor, in order to earn a meager living. Dead Men Kill, Spy Killer, Cargo of Coffins, Branded Outlaw, Hubbard would publish so many books that he holds the Guinness World Record to this day. As his popularity began to grow, Hubbard encountered a life-changing moment at a routine dental visit that caused him to undergo a near-death experience. This moment is to believed to have caused Hubbard's distrust in psychiatric drugs and to reject psychology altogether. This near-death experience also inspired Hubbard to create a manuscript titled The One Commander or Excalibur. This work was never published and is believed to be an 
early version of Dianetics. He had truly believed his profound experience and writing thereafter would, quote, revolutionize everything. That anyone who read his work would, quote, either go insane or commit suicide. When speaking publicly on Excalibur, Hubbard told a convention of science fiction fans that the work came to him when he died. He came to a realization while dead, described as a tremendous inspiration or a great message which he must impart to others. He sat at his typewriter for six days and nights and nothing came. Then Excalibur emerged. Hubbard was sure he created a riveting masterpiece and was ready to sell it to the public. Instead, the failure of sales led him to become depressed. His luck would only change 20 years later, when Scientology publications would try and sell copies of Excalibur for $1,500 a piece. That's almost $17,000 today. Amid a failing writing career, Hubbard began to look for new paths of success that would increase his wealth and reputation. In the hopes of resurrecting his old adventurous self, Hubbard joined the Explorers Club in 1940. Attaching the Explorers Club flag to his sailboat, Hubbard and his wife set off to Alaska for an Alaskan radio experimental expedition. This adventure was short lived. Within two days of embarking, the ship's engine failed and Hubbard did not have enough money to repair it. Eventually, by writing stories and contributing to the local radio station in Ketchikan, Alaska, Hubbard earned enough money to fix the engine and returned to the mainland U.S. After returning from yet another fruitless odyssey, Hubbard applied to join the United States Navy, most likely in a bid to satisfy his father. Hubbard began training as an intelligence officer, but while in Australia, a military report concluded Hubbard was, quote, not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He was not trusted and seen as a liability by the Navy, but World War II was on the horizon and the United States needed every man they could get. After being relieved of command at a naval shipyard, Hubbard was sent to submarine chaser training in Portland, Oregon. As you could expect, he wasn't much of a submarine officer as well. It is documented that he once engaged in battle with an enemy sub for 68 hours. Upon being called back to the States, it was concluded that no submarines were in the area, and Hubbard had been battling a, quote, known magnetic deposit. I don't know if this is common among submarine circles, but 68 hours? Come on. Hubbard was once again relieved of command after firing upon the Coronado Islands, which belonged to Mexico. It was almost as if he wanted to be discharged from the military. The upper echelons of the Navy determined that Hubbard should be strictly assigned, quote, duty on a large vessel where he can be properly supervised. During his remaining time in the military, Hubbard complained about a series of ailments such as malaria, ulcers, and back pain, which, according to his own private writings, were excuses to keep the Navy from punishing him. Hubbard was unable to follow in his father's footsteps, as the Navy had finally had enough of his antics, restricting him to duties ashore within the continental U.S. In 1946, he was transferred to inactive duty and had to find yet another way to sustain a livelihood. After World War II, Hubbard was a lost man, believing to be a burden on his family and friends. He chose California as a possible new start to life while abandoning his wife Margaret and two children. With a bit of blind luck, 
he befriended John Parsons, a rocket propulsion researcher and occultist. Yeah, you heard that right. Parsons was a Thelemite, a follower of the infamous Aleister Crowley, and member of the magical order Ordo Templi Orientis. Parsons let Hubbard stay with him in his Pasadena mansion, apparently only allowing a room to people who were atheist or of a bohemian disposition. In a hilarious twist, Hubbard began to be sexually involved with Parsons' 21-year-old girlfriend, Sarah Northrup. What's funnier is Parsons wrote to his mentor Crowley of Hubbard's arrival, stating, Hubbard is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest and intelligent, and we have become great friends. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friends, she has transferred her sexual affection to Ron. Although he has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduced that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair, whom he calls the Empress, and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met, and is in complete accord with our own principles. Parsons admired Hubbard and thought of him as having the perfect mind for an occultist. Hubbard became an enthusiastic member of the OTO cult, earning him a spot at the Babylon Working. The Babylon Working was a sexual ritual intended to summon forth the supreme Thelemic goddess so that Parsons could impregnate her in order to bring forth the Antichrist. No one knows what Parsons or Hubbard did behind closed doors, but the goddess arrived days later in the form of Marjorie Cameron, an American actress and fellow occultist. The fact that Cameron joined their rites after the ritual convinced Hubbard, Parsons, and Northrup to create a business together, named Allied Enterprises. The trio poured almost all of their savings into the company and had a specific plan to buy yachts in Miami, sail them to the West Coast, and sell them for a profit. However, Hubbard didn't like this idea and after a short while, changed the plan to visit Central and South America. He wanted to collect writing materials and enjoy a cruise while doing so. Parsons and Crowley decided Hubbard was a trickster, a swindler who was going to backstab them. And they were right. Allied Enterprises was dissolved, and Parsons, who put most of his wealth into the company, only received a meager promissory note. He was forced to sell his mansion to developers in order to recoup his losses. Hubbard had stolen this man's wife, his home, and basically his whole life. After the dust settled, Hubbard married Sarah Northrup while still technically married to his first wife, and purchased a trailer in Laguna Beach, California, working odd jobs in order to make a living. According to Sarah's personal records, Hubbard was no family man. He was the exact opposite, a brute who continuously lied to her in order to make himself sound better than he really was. We had this terrible fight, and he told me he was going to commit suicide if I didn't marry him. I really believed him. So we got married. We spent the winter in that lighthouse on the lake in the Poconos. I remember one awful night when I was asleep and he was up typing. And he hit me across the side of the head with a 45. Because I was smiling in my sleep and he said I was thinking about somebody else. 
Hubbard began writing science fiction again, selling tons of novels such as Old Doc Methuselah and To the Stars. But Hubbard never really made any money writing science fiction and would repeatedly beg the Veterans Administration to increase his war pension. Though the VA did help Hubbard by eventually increasing his pension, he sought other means of making money. For example, on August 31st, 1948, Hubbard was arrested in San Luis Obispo, California for petty theft. He escaped prison time, but had to pay a $25 fine, almost $300 today. He had no money, which brought him back to square one. After destroying Parsons' life and earning a reputation as a scam artist in California, Hubbard and his new wife Sarah moved to Savannah, Georgia in 1948. As an only source of income, Hubbard had to start writing again. But this time, instead of romantic space wars, he began the foundations for what would become Dianetics. Hubbard's articles were not all that interesting enough to gain attention, save from one man, his editor, John Campbell. No, he didn't steal John's wife either, but he did take advantage of John's fascination with parapsychology in order to sell his quote, research. Campbell must have been more than excited upon hearing about Hubbard's works because he invited the newlyweds to live in a cottage closer to him in Bayhead, New Jersey. In 1949, Delving deeper into the creation of Dianetics, Hubbard came across the greatest legitimizing tool to bring his new pseudoscience into the mainstream world, a doctor, Joseph Augustus Winter. Hubbard, Winter, and Campbell came together to develop Dianetics, which was effectively Hubbard's idea of therapy. Dianetics' main premise was that the brain registers every experience and incident in a person's life even if they're unconscious. As you go through life, your mind records everything that happens to you. Every experience you've ever had, from the beginning of your existence until this very moment. These experiences are stored as pictures in your analytical mind, the conscious part of your mind that thinks rationally remembers and solves problems. Traumatic events were specifically stored as engrams in a reactive mind and could be later triggered in life, resulting in mental and physical issues. By performing a technique called auditing, these engrams could be cleared, resulting in an individual with an increased IQ and cured of any physical ailments. This would be known as the clear state all religions would seem to have a dogma, a discipline. Now, how disciplined is Scientology? The discipline is entirely the uh, limitation of the conduct of the auditor. That is to say, an auditor is a practitioner in Scientology. He listens and he computes. According to Dr. Winter, the Dianetic practice of auditing cured his son's fears of the dark and ghosts. Campbell believed Dianetics to be truly remarkable, that the mind rules the body completely, standing by the fact that physical illnesses such as ulcers, asthma, and arthritis can all be cured. Dianetics would become Hubbard's fastest selling novel and number one bestseller, but it didn't go without criticism. In 1950, 
Winter had a falling out with Hubbard and his pseudoscience, resigning from the HDRF, or the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation, declaring, quote, Differences between the ideals inherent within the Dianetics hypothesis and the actions of the Foundation. Winter began to see through Hubbard's claims and believed Dianetic techniques could be potentially dangerous if performed incorrectly. Winter also wrote that he never witnessed any individual reach a state of clear, and that Dianetics could in fact lead people to become psychotic. Even after the controversy, Hubbard abandoned any other type of job and turned to fully promoting Dianetics. In the following decade, he would go on to write dozens of books and give thousands of lectures to establish Dianetics research amongst institutions. Dianetics almost immediately garnered massive success, with 55,000 copies being sold by August of 1950. The public may have loved Dianetics, but the scientific community was not impressed. The American Psychological Association said Dianetics was not supported by any empirical evidence, and Scientific American said Hubbard's scam contained, quote, more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. Science fiction writers who had been friends with Hubbard in the past criticized his new work, calling it gibberish and lunacy. Despite a good amount of backlash, hundreds of thousands of people were eager to pay for Dianetics' expensive programs. According to online sources, Hubbard wasn't shy of taking his own cut, withdrawing lump sums of money from proceeds to pay for his upcoming lavish lifestyle. After all, he deserved it. Hubbard was a driving force behind the Dianetics craze, training, publishing, lecturing, and promoting Dianetics across the states. Of course, Hubbard's charisma wasn't the sole reason for Dianetics' success. As reported by the Los Angeles Times, Sheldon MacArthur, a former manager of B. Dalton Booksellers on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, said, Quote, Whenever the sales seem to slacken and a Hubbard book goes off the bestsellers list, give it a week and we'll get these people coming in, buying 50 to 100 to 200 copies at a crack, cash only. The Times also describes similar experiences from Gary Hamill, B. Dalton's former manager at Santa Monica Place, who said, quote, 10 people would come in at a time and buy quantities of them and they would pay cash. He said that while he was working at the B. Dalton in Hollywood, some books shipped by Hubbard's publishing house arrived with B. Dalton price stickers already on them. He said that this indicated to him that the books had been purchased at one of the chain's outlets, then returned to the publishing house and then shipped out for resale before anyone thought to remove the stickers. Quote, We would order more books, and they'd come back with our stickers as if they were bought by the publisher. The publisher in question, being Bridge Publications Incorporated, founded and controlled by Scientologists, whose representatives refused to be interviewed about book sales or firm operations. Hubbard had his hands everywhere. He could taste the good life and was one step closer to a literal vault when all credibility was lost. In August of 1950, at the height of Dianetics, Hubbard hosted a presentation before an audience of 6,000 people in Los Angeles. In this presentation, Hubbard unveiled the very first clear Sonia 
Bianchi. Quote, in the demonstration that followed, she failed to remember a single formula in physics, the subject in which she was majoring, or the color of Hubbard's tie when his back was turned. At this point, a large part of the audience got up and left. The first true clear wouldn't be declared for more than 15 years by the name of John McMaster. Between then, there was no real structure to Dianetics, and many of whom who were trained by Hubbard ended up splintering off and creating their own pseudosciences or cults. Financial crisis gripped Hubbard's newfound empire. And to make matters worse, Hubbard's second marriage to Sarah ended when he was found having an affair with his 20-year-old assistant. Sarah was two steps ahead, romantically seeing a Dianetics auditor, probably taught by Hubbard himself, named Miles Hollister. Hubbard felt so betrayed by this, he contacted the FBI to report Sarah and Miles as communist infiltrators from the Soviet Union. Nothing came of Hubbard's lies except a depraved man hell-bent on getting his wish. He kidnapped his wife and one-year-old daughter Alexis and took them to California. He tried to have his wife medically evaluated and declared insane, but ultimately failed, leaving Sarah and taking his daughter to Cuba. Sarah had to release a public statement for the safe return of her daughter in 1951. At this point, Hubbard's career was crumbling, and so was his family. He was surprisingly not charged with any crime, giving him the freedom to push Dianetics to its next evolution, Scientology. However, a financial crisis made things difficult, and his dreams were on the brink of collapse. At the hour of its death, Hubbard's religion was saved by Don Purcell, a millionaire businessman who agreed to help by starting another foundation. At the same time, Hubbard was expanding Dianetics. In 1952, Hubbard published a new set of teachings completely separate from Dianetics, which would come to be the philosophical framework for Scientology. Meanwhile, his relationship with Don Purcell was short-lived. After a year together, the two had a falling out over Dianetics and Scientology's future. The two battled in court over the Foundation's intellectual property, while Hubbard tried to save any legitimacy by founding Hubbard College, another Hubbard original that didn't last very long. The college was shut down within six weeks of its founding, but not before Hubbard married an 18-year-old employee named Mary Sue Whip. They had four children together, Quentin, Diana, Suzette, and Thomas. Hubbard and his wife would then relocate to Phoenix, Arizona, starting the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International in order to spread his, quote, science of certainty. Science of certainty, or Scientology, is different from Dianetics because the goal is to liberate the mind from the, quote, distorting influence of engrams, whereas Scientology focuses on, quote, the study and handling of the spirit in relation to itself, universes, and other life. Hubbard insisted that humanity was threatened by outside forces caused by engrams from immortal thetans. So, 
It's science fiction. Hubbard was most likely worried he was going to lose the copyright of Dianetics to Purcell, and so created Scientology in its place. There are even reports claiming Hubbard plagiarized the description of Thetans with the description of astral projection in occult literature. At least, Hubbard was creative enough to add a bit of his own flair, a new device called the E-meter. Allegedly, the E-meter is capable of measuring the strength of small electrical currents passing through an individual's body, who is in the process of being audited. This current is able to pick up on emotional disturbances and detect any stored engrams. This device, piloted by a trained auditor, could cure an individual of dozens of illnesses without physical contact, among other miracles. As Scientology grew slowly, Hubbard proposed opening a chain of spiritual guidance centers, while charging roughly $500 for a 24-hour auditing program. Quote, We don't want a clinic. We want one in operation, but not in name. Perhaps we could call it a spiritual guidance center, and we could put in nice desks with our boys in neat blue, with diplomas on the walls, and one, knock psychotherapy into history, and two, make enough money to shine up my operating scope, and three, keep the HAS solvent. It is a problem of practical business. I await your reaction on the religion angle. In my opinion, we couldn't get worse public opinion than we have had or have less customers with what we've got to sell. You mentioned just now that you discovered for yourself that man was a spirit. Are you here comparing Scientology with a religion, any religion in fact, that also sees man as a spirit? Well, man has, uh, man has conceived man to be a spirit for many more years than he has conceived man to be uh, an animal. Scientology businesses became Scientology churches, and some auditors began masquerading as clerics. If they were detained while carrying out their duties, Hubbard instructed them to sue for millions of dollars for molesting, quote, a man of God going about his business. A few years later, he urged Scientologists, quote, if attacked on some vulnerable point by anyone, anything, or any organization, always discover or fabricate enough threat against them to make them sue for peace. Never, ever defend. Always, always attack. This philosophy seemed to work for Hubbard because in 1954, he won the rights of Dianetics back from Don Purcell, as well as a major victory in earning a tax exemption status from the IRS. From then on, Scientology became an extremely profitable business for Hubbard. His third wife gave birth to three more children, and with Hubbard making so much money, he purchased an 18th century mansion, the St. Hill Manor, which doubled as a Scientologist headquarters. Everything wasn't perfect. Hubbard's insane wealth was suspicious, enough that the IRS withdrew their tax exemption status from their Washington, D.C. headquarters in 1958. After monetary data concluded, 
Hubbard was unreasonably profiting from supposed nonprofit income. Roughly 10 years later, the IRS did the same to Hubbard's California headquarters, stifling his income on the basis he operated a commercial enterprise rather than religious. The FDA also got in the ring, choosing to not agree with Scientology's medical claims, seizing valuable inventory from the church, including their infamous e-meters. The church was mandated to label all e-meters as a religious artifact, quote, ineffective in the diagnosis or treatment of disease. The only country to ban Scientology outright was Australia. A few states, such as Victoria, banned Scientology altogether, reporting that the process of auditing involved command hypnosis. By this point, Hubbard hated the United States, or in particular, any regulation agency in charge of protecting the public. These institutions were simply small hurdles slowing down Hubbard's proselytization. The FDA, IRS, and FBI could not stop him. And Scientology itself is not exactly a religion. Scientology could be called, well... You could call it a religion of religions. A global community began to grow that could not be ignored. At the turn of the decade in 1960, Scientology had gained worldwide fame, leading to governments eyeing Scientology as a perceived threat. Hubbard was a radical thinker, believing U.S. agencies and foreign governments had infiltrated Scientology with spies, and so he developed measures to defend his creation. People or groups judged as fair game would be punished and harassed by any means possible. In a letter sent to all Scientologists, Hubbard explained fair game individuals, quote, may be deprived of property or injured by any means by any Scientologist without any discipline of the Scientologists, may be tricked, sued, or lied to, or even destroyed. A security check involved an ethics officer who would question supposed spies or newcomers to the faith in order to deduce whether or not they were a suppressive persons. There were actually different types of security checks, ones designed for staff auditors or field auditors, one for children aged 6 to 12, and one that consists of questions that apply to not just your life right now, but countless past lives. Did you come to Earth for evil purposes? Have you ever enslaved a population? Have you ever eaten a human body? Have you ever made a planet or nation radioactive. If the security checks weren't enough protection from those who would do him harm, Hubbard left St. Hill Manor and moved aboard his own private fleet. The Enchanter, the Avon River, and Royal Scotman, which would all be renamed later after Hubbard's visit to the Mediterranean as the Diana, Athena, and Apollo. This private fleet would come to be manned by the Sea Org. Hubbard's personal fraternity, founded in 1967, described by former Scientologists as a paramilitary group, home to some of the most highly respected and devoted members of Scientology. Hubbard and the Sea Org left the United States on an eight-year voyage, sailing across the Atlantic and into the Mediterranean, stopping at several ports, including the Azores, Corfu, and Dakar. One of the only interviews of Hubbard came to exist from one of these trips. Hubbard was trying to find a safe haven for all Scientologists, 
but wasn't welcomed by foreign governments. During his time aboard at sea, he was able to master the craft of religion by developing Scientology's doctrines to encompass new and confidential courses. Hannah Whitfield, a former Sea Org member turned defector, explained her scenario as well as Hubbard's behavior in HBO's expose. How did he react to being deported from there? How was he when he came back? Very guarded at the airport. He was um, a little terse, much terser than I knew him in his lectures at St. Hill, for example. Uh, he, he was to the point. He tried to be his usual sort of ebullient um, communicative self, but it, it just wasn't the same. He was a lot quieter. All the while, the Sea Org and other members described conditions among Hubbard's fleet as horrendous. Miller, in The Barefaced Messiah, explains how, by 1970, Sea Org members stretched to encompass young girls dressed in salacious clothing, who ran errands for Hubbard and senior Scientologists. Though Hubbard chose to embrace a vacation lifestyle while captaining his ships, hardship and legal threats lurked not too far behind. In 1972, facing charges of fraud and customs violations by the French government, Hubbard abandoned the Sea Org and lived a life of seclusion in Queens, New York. He would return to his flagship a year later, but his health had deteriorated drastically and would only get worse, which were brought on by heart complications and a motorcycle accident. In 1975, following a riot on the island of Madeira, Hubbard and the Sea Org returned to the United States to establish a brand new headquarters for Scientology. Scientologists sought to forge their own utopia. Using a fake name, they bought a hotel in Clearwater, Florida, which steadily grew to encompass surrounding property. They wanted total control of Clearwater, going as far as to have a code name for their operation, Project Normandy. Clearwater Mayor Gabe Cazares called Scientology's arrival the occupation of Clearwater. According to the Clearwater Sun in 1976, residents of the city began to notice armed guards patrolling the hotel. Cazares was seen as an enemy of the church, so they targeted him in an effort to trap him in a sex scandal. They also manufactured a false hit-and-run accident in an attempt to discredit Cazares, called Operation Speedy Gonzales. But the mayor was not going to roll over and issued a $1.5 million lawsuit against the church, which halted their occupation. Today, the church has a stranglehold on the entire downtown area area of the city, making it impossible to walk down the street without being spied on, harassed, or converted. Hubbard began weaponizing the Guardian's office, an intelligence agency created within the Church of Scientology to fight against networks of conspiracy against him. The GO penetrated and burglarized a number of government agencies, including the United States Department of Justice and the IRS. After two GO agents were apprehended by the IRS in Washington, D.C., the FBI conducted synchronized searches of GO offices. They recovered wiretapping equipment burglary tools, and thousands of documents indicating potential crimes. The U.S. government prosecuted 10 Scientologists, including Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue, who was sentenced to federal prison. Hubbard remained free, but 
not for long. In 1978, the French government convicted Hubbard of gaining money through deception and sentenced him to four years in prison and a $30,000 fine by today's standards. Hubbard, not interested in sitting in a cell for years, decided to once again hide among the suburbs of California. Hubbard became a hermit, limiting correspondence with Scientology members and loved ones, living out the remaining of his days as a fugitive, although he did find company. Pat and Annie Broker, two trusted messengers who helped Hubbard live on the move during the 1980s. Hiding in hotels and in his car, Hubbard found the time to take up an old hobby of writing science fiction. He wrote Battlefield Earth and Mission Earth, published respectively in 1982 and 1985. Meanwhile, Hubbard's absence left a power vacuum among Scientology, which the Sea Org took advantage of by seizing control and expelling veterans. Scientologists. A young Scientologist messenger, whose name was inconsequential, would shift through the crowd, ultimately defeating all of his rivals to become the de facto head of Scientology, David Miscavige. David may have been the figurative new face of Scientology, but as long as Hubbard was alive, he was the true leader. He lived out his last years in a luxury motorhome in Creston, California, while the public scrambled to ascertain whether he was alive or not. Hubbard carefully managed the church as a shadowy puppet master. Governments and agencies still searched for Hubbard, but before they could find and indict him, L. Ron Hubbard passed away on January 24, 1986 after suffering from a stroke the week prior. After Hubbard's death, Scientology would evolve into a completely different entity, one obsessed with innovation and transformation. It was time Scientology adapted to fit modern culture in the hopes of reaching new followers and retaining its status as an authentic belief system. The church transitioned the eggs in their basket to full-time promotion of tools for life courses and the organization of global programs to help poverty-stricken communities. Narconon, Criminon, the Way to Happiness Foundation, the Volunteer Minister Program. They even have a specific institution to fight psychiatry, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. But investigating and exposing psychiatry's inhuman and often lethal practices and defending the rights of its victims is the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. These institutions are focused on drug abuse awareness, rehabilitation, human rights, and literacy, and claim to offer tools necessary to help build a functioning society. Anyone outside Scientology believes these organizations are a public relations stunt, simply acting as institutions to bolster their reputation and feign legitimacy. Those inside Scientology believe these organizations act as an alternative to state-run companies who fail to help their citizens. Hubbard distrusted the government, so must his followers. They believe in what he started and that they have a duty to finish it. But do they actually follow Hubbard's vision? Or have they grown into capitalist conglomerates disguising an old man's fantasy behind bureaucracy? Well, they have a specific policy in place to make sure Scientology is always on track. The policy is called KSW, or Keeping Scientology Working, which has come to be the most important policy in the church, serving as the cornerstone for any action that takes place within the church. The KSW 10 points are, number one, 
having the correct technology, which Hubbard asserts has already been achieved. Number two, knowing the technology, which he claims many within Scientology have also achieved. Three, knowing it is correct. Hubbard says this comes from application and observation. Number four, teaching correctly the correct technology. Hubbard claims this is done worldwide throughout Scientology. Number five, applying the technology, which Hubbard also says is already happening. Number six, seeing that the technology is correctly applied. Hubbard states that instructors and supervisors do this already. Number seven, hammering out of existence incorrect technology is the first problem area, according to Hubbard, which he calls a weak point only handled by a few. Number eight, knocking out incorrect applications, which Hubbard says is not worked on hard enough. Number nine, closing the door on any possibility of incorrect technology. Hubbard says that this is, quote, impeded by the reasonable attitude of the not quite bright. And lastly, number 10, closing the door on incorrect application. Hubbard says this is, quote, seldom done with enough ferocity. To be honest, it's no wonder the church's foundations and beliefs are hidden behind paywalls, because no sane person would believe them. At the core of Scientology beliefs, you have Dianetics and Auditing, Engrams, E-Meters, and Reactive Minds. You also have Thetans, Greek for Thought or Life which, in Scientology, is an immortal spirit that has endless lives. Scientology is intended to rehabilitate each person's identity, or Thetan, in order to recover their primitive abilities and become an operating Thetan, commonly referred to as an OT. To do so, you must overcome the Eight Urges. The Eight Urges, or Dynamics in Scientology, which you can think of as similar to something like the Ten Commandments in Christianity. Number one, the urge toward existence as oneself, self-preservation, and self-dynamic. Number two, Urge toward existence as a sexual activity, lust, sex dynamic. Number three, urge toward existence in a group. Number four, urge toward existence of mankind. Number five, urge toward the existence of the animal kingdom. Number six, urge toward existence as the physical universe. Number seven, urge toward existence as spirits. Number eight, urge toward existence as infinity or the God dynamic. These urges make up life. Without them, you are not human. The church explains how, quote, the abilities and shortcomings of individuals can be understood by viewing their participation in the various dynamics. So you don't want to follow your urges like you would the Ten Commandments. You want to control them. Besides overcoming their urges and session after session of auditing, Scientologists are encouraged to continue up the bridge of total freedom to one day become a clear. None of this is remotely free. And once you've reached the end of the bridge and become a clear, you're not done. There's still money to spend and knowledge to learn. The secret OT, or operating Thetan levels, takes place upon Scientology's luxury cruise ship, the Free wins. The public wouldn't know these existed if it weren't for FBI raids and senior Scientology defectors who've shared their stories. These levels are considered a chance to obtain godhood. 
only if you succeed. OT1 involves solo auditing and could cost around $3,000. OT2 is more solo auditing, but this time you're looking for past incarnations. This level costs around $5,200. OT3 is known as the Wall of Fire. $9,000 to do pretty much the same shit as the last OT levels, except you begin to learn about Scientology's true beliefs, where we come from, and why we're here. OT4 is the OT Drug Rundown. OT5 includes audited New Era Dianetics for OTs, or... NOTs. OT6 and 7 include solo NOTs auditing course, which are more courses designed to suck you dry of any money you have left, all the while selling you a bad science fiction story. The Saga of Xenu the Tyrant, a leader of a galactic confederacy who ruled over 70 or so planets which ironically had the same technology as Earth. Xenu's idea to solve the problem of overpopulation was to trick a massive portion of his population into tax audits, where he froze them and transported them to Earth in a spacecraft identical to DC-8 airlines. The people captured by Xenu were placed around volcanoes in primordial Earth known as Tijiak a prison planet in which the people were then to be killed by nuclear bombs. Billions of souls were thrown about the Earth, lost and without bodies. They were subsequently captured by Xenu's minions and forced to endure brainwashing. These souls are Thetans, and when humans are born, multiple Thetans latch onto your body and infect you with neuroticism. So, humans are not just me and you in the here and now. We are also countless past lives of other humans who have lived before us, as well as human beings who were massacred billions of years ago, whose scattered souls or thetans now search the earth in hopes of tainting humanity. It miraculously doesn't end there. There's stages above the OT levels where you are no longer an operating thetan, but a cleared theta clear, essentially a god. Hubbard described this divine point as, quote, a Thetan who is completely rehabilitated and can do everything a Thetan should do, such as move MEST and control others from a distance, or create his own universe. A person who is able to create his own universe, or living in the MEST universe, is able to create illusions perceivable by others at will. To handle MEST universe objects without mechanical means and to have and feel no need of bodies or even the MEST universe to keep himself and his friends interested in existence. Holy f***. For many Scientologists, when they heard this, it had them questioning their entire existence. Their religion was based around a space opera. Furthermore, the screenplay Revolt in the Stars written in 1977 by L. Ron Hubbard, depicts this very story. Why Hubbard would release the secret level of OT3 to the world is unknown. Maybe he thought Scientology mythology was good enough to be a film. Speaking of film, a ton of celebrities and actors have come to call Scientology home, a belief that has strengthened their lives to this day. Kirstie Alley, Elizabeth Moss, Giovanni Ribisi, Danny and Chris Masterson, Michael Pena, and John Travolta, who claims Dianetics and auditing taught him to be a better actor. He also chose to star in Battlefield Earth, based on Hubbard's work, which is a horrendous excuse for a sci-fi movie, but you can be the judge of that. 
And let's not forget about everyone's favorite Scientologist. No, it's not Tom Cruise. That's too obvious. It's Grant Cardone. My role in the Dianetics Racing Team is CEO. I'm a good friend of the driver. And uh, so we mastermind, hey, what is it going to take for us to be competitive at the next level? Can you tell people why Papa's so good? Because uh, he's a millionaire and he knows Scientology. Whoa, really? What does that have to do with anybody? You're just making stuff up. They all believe in Scientology and what it has to offer. They have found success by taking courses and progressing up the ladder that is supposedly invaluable to them. Though I wonder what Tom Cruise's face was like when he first read about Xenu. There are other actors who are rumored to have contacted or been contacted by the church, such as Jerry Seinfeld, who once described to the media how a Scientology course helped him to be a better communicator, but he did not pursue it further. Brad Pitt, who had church rumors spread about him when he dated Juliette Lewis, another high member of Scientology. With any religion, there are the few who choose to follow a different path. Mimi Rogers, Tom Cruise's first wife, introduced him to Scientology, but after their divorce in 1989, she would leave the church while he stayed, becoming one of their most recognizable faces. Tom's second wife, Nicole Kidman, got up to OT level two, but ultimately left the church and split from Tom. Katie Holmes, another wife of Tom Cruise, was, quote, fully immersed in Scientology during their relationship, but describes it now as escaping a nightmare. Katie, as well as Leah Remini, the queen of queens, have both been staunch critics of Scientology and its practices, appearing on podcasts or to the media to speak forth about the abuses that take place. When you start asking questions about what you're seeing in the news, which you're also not allowed to watch the news or read newspapers, um, you start, you get interrogated, you get put into a room and put uh, on, on, a, on an actual meter, uh, like a lie detector test, uh, apparatus, whatever you want to call it. And, cans, and they're thank you. silver cans. They're cans connected to a meter, which, you know, Scientologists believe works. And they ask you for your crimes. Why are you asking these questions? You're connected to suppressive people who is right, what the so church calls their enemies. There is also the YouTube channel, Growing Up in Scientology, hosted by Aaron Smith-Levin, a former Scientologist who updates his audience on all the things Scientology won't let us hear. Who could forget Scientology's very own Kids Bop? Scientologists take their music very seriously. Most importantly, 
There is a fact that Scientology almost always inflates their numbers to seem as if they have ever-expanding members and earn more money than they actually do. If you had any doubts, these few celebrities don't come close to acknowledging how many defectors from Scientology there truly are. Jason Begay, Sylvia Taylor, Amy Scobie, Marty Rathbun, Mike Rinder, Paul Haggis, Alex Gibney, Lawrence Wright, even David Miscavige's father, Ron Miscavige, has left the church. If you were to ever listen to L. Ron Hubbard on a lecture, on a tape lecture, he was so charismatic, you listen to him and you think, this guy's got to be telling the truth. And that wasn't the case. Very uh, accomplished, very smart people have been involved in Scientology for years and years and years. When does the penny drop that this is wacko? Sometimes never. Sometimes never. But look, realize this. As a Scientologist, you are encouraged to come and study Scientology for two and a half hours a day, five days of the week. Now, let's say you've been in Scientology for three years. That's a hell of a lot of indoctrination. That's not just a couple times you're going and reading a book. I can tell you it's one of the more insidious traps that you can get into. Today, Scientology is mocked by thousands of critics online for the use of their donations and overall secrecy surrounding the inner workings of the religion. However, the world seems to take them quite seriously. When you have enough money, people listen. Like the millions who tuned in to inadvertently stain their eyes by watching Scientology's $7 million Super Bowl ad. More than armies, than walls or chains than fear or bigotry or hate. It has conquered land and sea, vanquished ignorance and intolerance, and expanded our horizons. It has driven the greatest minds in history to solve the mysteries of science and culture and religion. It's a fire burning within each of us with unlimited potential to take us further, push us higher, and bring us closer to understanding the simple truths that bind us all. Since 2013, Scientology has been purchasing Super Bowl advertisements in a bid to normalize their beliefs. Not everyone who sees one of their ads decides to join. That's why the church has rules in place to combat anyone that disagrees with them. They combat anyone that disagrees with them with policies such as disconnection and attack the attacker. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, I guess the first thing I would like to take up is the fact that the intro piece... Uh there's no question that there's some controversy surrounding Scientology, but if you want to look at what the real controversy is, there's been stories uh, like this one that we saw here for the past 40 years, and yet during that time period, Scientology has continued to grow. In fact, it's 25 times larger today than it was in 1980. Uh, I would just like to take up a few of the falsehoods that are in there because I think this explains a lot why you have the controversy. I don't know that Scientology lends itself so well to the press. Uh, in this instance, uh, we did agree that uh, we would uh, have your correspondence come in, and in fact, he did have unlimited access to the church. But then you get a piece like this. For instance, something that isn't mentioned in there is that every single detractor on there is part of a religious hate group called Cult Awareness Network and their sister group called uh, American Family Foundation. Now, I don't know if you've heard of these people, but uh, 
It's the same as the KKK would be with the blacks. I think if you interviewed a neo-Nazi and asked them to talk about the Jews, you would get a similar result to what you have here. These morally bankrupt barbaric tactics show that the church has measures to eliminate dissent and ensure autonomy over new followers. Not to mention the fact that they aren't shy to silence you. There are dozens of deaths associated with Scientology, but the most credible are Ellie Perkins, who was murdered by her son Jeremy after he sought psychiatric treatment from Scientology. Noah Loddick jumped out of a 10th floor hotel window to his death shortly after taking Scientology courses. And the most publicized, Lisa McPherson, who was held by the church to undergo forced isolation as a means to help a psychotic episode. She passed away upon arriving at a hospital with the autopsy later revealing she died of a pulmonary embolism. The autopsy also indicated multiple bruises on her body and tissue damage consistent with insect or animal bites. The church even suppressed David Miscavige's own wife, Shelley. After returning from a trip aboard the Free Winds, Shelley's mood was visibly different. Shortly thereafter, in June of 2006, Shelley disappeared from public life. Her mother, Mary Flo Barnett, who was a longtime Scientologist, left the church and allegedly took confidential documents to a rival association, David Mayo's Advanced Ability Center. Vicki Asnoran, a former church executive, explained, quote, the fact that David Miscavige was linked to Flo Barnett by familial ties was extremely repugnant to him and to his wife. On September 8th, 1985, Mary Barnett was found dead from multiple gunshot wounds. The conclusion from the coroner's report reads, The case is that of a 52-year-old woman who died as the result of multiple gunshot wounds which were self-inflicted. The gunshot wound of the head was immediately fatal and occurred following the three gunshot wounds to the chest, which had produced a very small left hemothorax. In addition, there were two recent incised wounds that involved the right and left wrists. Two suicide notes were left, and the decedent had become depressed following surgical intervention for an aneurysm of the carotid artery. Despite this glaring evidence, Mary's death was ruled self-inflicted. And if it wasn't clear already, it's starting to look like a mob. Based on many alleged reports, if you mess with Scientology money, they will come after you with everything they have. If they can't kill you, it's certain they'll lock you in years of court proceedings to empty your wallet because they can. They have an army of dedicated soldiers who are ready to label you an enemy of the church, while Scientology's leadership profits from selling lies. The charity work they do does not erase their sins, nor does it erase the unbelievable space opera paraded at the upper levels for whopping amounts of money. That's the entire meaning of Scientology. Hubbard's vision was not to bring some new moral code to mankind. It was for his own ego, to convince anyone he could that he was a perfect man, including his own father. His race to become something no man can achieve led him down a path he could never escape. For the Scientologists who remain, they are living out a doomed man's dream, disconnected from from reality and all things that make us human. You said that through Scientology processing, a person was able to look at the problems, to confront the problems that they were facing in their everyday life. 
Is this some form of hypnotism? Oh, no. <laughs> That's very funny. Man is asleep. He is hypnotized. He is made to fixate on certain things, you see, and, and the process that you normally know as brainwashing and that sort of thing is hypnotizing man. It's forcing him into certain values. It's crowding him by various duress into these values. And he eventually becomes a person who has no awareness.